Um, I think that song was just a perfect segue into our message, that, that last line, to be overcome. And that's really the goal. I talked about this last week in our new series. Our new series right now is called A Son is Given. A Son is Given. And the goal of this is to do something that I definitely can't do for you. Um, it's not something that I can conjure up, I can't manufacture, but I want us to be kind of mind-blown, blown away, overcome, overwhelmed by the story, this familiar story that we celebrate at the, at the end of the year, this Advent story, this Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, this familiar story, like I want God and I want the Spirit to come and kind of blow your mind about what is really happening in that town of Bethlehem, oh, 2,000 years ago. Um, in this series, we are seeking to do this by focusing on a larger concept connected to the story. You know, I, I, feel like, I feel like what we have to do, I think the pad is still on. <laughs> Can we turn that off? Um, even though it kind of makes it nice, but let's turn that off. Uh, so I'm not like a hiker. I'm not like a mountain person. I'm not like an Oregon person, you know, I'm from L.A., you know, grew up in the city, uh, and this just like never been my thing, but like there's, I, I see some value. I'm going to show you guys a picture, and this is not, I didn't take this picture because I don't do this kind of stuff, uh, but this is a hiking trail, right? I think since I've moved here seven years ago, I've hiked twice, and one was like on a paved road, uh, but this is a hiking trail in Mount Hood, and um, I found this online, Googled it, and I was like, Mountain Hood, hike, Mount Hood hiking trail. I was like, oh, this is a really nice picture. You know, this like beautiful grass, cool mountain in the back, right? And so if you guys have hiked before or backpacked, you've, you've been in these moments, you're like, wow, this is a really beautiful scene. And this is really cool in and of itself. But if you were to take a step back and pull out from this image, instead you would see this. This. This is the same mountain, but a whole totally different perspective, right? That when you're close up in the mountain, when you're close up on the trail, yeah, it's beautiful. But when you, when you pull back, this is a whole different level. I also didn't take this picture. I got it from Google. Like this mountain is huge and enormous and it is big. And, and this is what I kind of want to do with the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus' birth. We focus a lot on the, the minutia and the details, which are powerful and important, and there's a lot of things we can learn from that. But there is power in stepping back, pulling back really far, and looking at it as a huge, huge moment in history, in, in world and human history. And I think it is by doing that, that that will allow the Spirit to come and overcome us, overwhelm us, and just leave us in awe and wonder of the story that is so familiar to so many of us. Like, I want us, by the end of this series, to be like, wow, I never knew the story was really about that. And so we're doing this by focusing on a concept, a theological and biblically massive concept that goes underreported, and it's, it's, it's not really thought about, and we don't really talk about it, but it's the idea of son, that Jesus is the son of God. Like what does that mean and why does it matter? And it's based on a verse that is associated with the story of Jesus' birth. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. And this is where we get the title for our series. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we're focusing on this son concept. 
Jesus is the Son of God. And the two questions we're trying to answer is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, and why does it matter? So as I said, we're, we're embarking on something that I have no power to do. I have no ability and no skills to blow your minds. So we need to invite the Spirit. We need the Lord to come and do that. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, you've given us a tall task. You've given me a tall task, Lord, that only you can accomplish. And so, Father, we give this time to you that you would overwhelm us and overcome us with the beauty of this story and the magnitude of what is really happening. Help us, Lord, to follow, lock on, and let that truth penetrate deep into our souls today. Let me pray. Amen. Have you guys uh, felt that, like, in, in mainstream, like, entertainment in Hollywood, that the world is kind of obsessed with the idea of a multiverse? Have you guys been feeling that? Like, it seems like so many movies that come out of Hollywood are about the multiverse. The best picture that won recently, not recently, but this year, was a movie about the multiverse, right? I kind of, the title's too complicated for me to say everywhere, everything, all the time, you know, that movie. It's about the multiverse. All the, all the superhero movies, the Marvel movies, the DC movies, all multiverse. Uh, Sony Pictures, Spider-Man, they're, they're totally deep into the Spider-Verse, which is a multiverse story. If you guys don't know what a multiverse is, like, go ask somebody who's 15 and under to explain it to you after the sermon. But real quick, the multiverse concept is this idea that we have this reality... And there are other realities, like we're in this universe, but there are parallel universes and parallel versions of you. So there's you on this earth, but there's you in another earth, in another reality, and they're different. And, and they made different decisions than you. They're you, but a different version of you. And so Hollywood has like latched onto this, and they're making movie after movie after movie. And I, don't, I was kind of thinking about like, why do they do that? Like, why are they so obsessed with this idea? And maybe it's just like, hey, it's a way to make more movies, make more stories, and so just a way to make more money. And that's probably true. But I also think that there is a deeper sense at why to why people are relating to this concept of the multiverse, even though, like, it's not real. Right? It's not real, right? <laughs> uh, I was reading an article in The New Yorker, and it was about the multiverse, and this, this author is talking about why people are really into it, and why it speaks to them, especially the generation, the young generation right now. And maybe you guys can identify with this if you, kind of, uh, if you see yourself as one of, that, one of those people. She says this, One theory holds that the ascent of the multiverse matches our need to keep up many identities. We may feel like different people as we slide from Instagram to Slack, to family group chat, we code switch as we move between work and home and parent-teacher conferences. That like right now, the way you live is you have like multiple identities. You have multiple roles that you serve. And you're like constantly going back and forth, back and forth. Like you're chauffeur in this moment. And then you're counselor. And then you're disciplinarian. And then you're boss. You know, and like you just have to, you don't have just the one identity that you live. You live with multiple and you're switching back and forth. So the idea of a multiverse kind of played out. You're like, I get that. Like I know that's probably not real, but my life feels like that. Another theory she has about why the idea of the multiverse is so appealing and relatable to people, and this is pretty unique and this is pretty special. She says, multiversal stories told well can reveal not only what might have been, but what could still be. In other words, this is the idea that people now, especially our younger generation, you look at the world and you're like, 
wow, it's pretty bad. And like my life is kind of bad and I'm struggling right now. The idea of a multiverse is nice because my life is bad right now and things are not great around me. But maybe out there, there's some other version of me that's happy and having a good time. And maybe if they could do that, if that version of me can do that, then maybe I can do that. And like that kind of touches to like the deepest parts of our heart, the reality that maybe we're not very happy and I want to be, and, and if someone, some other version of me can do it, then, then maybe I can do it. And I think it taps into like, you know, what we're struggling with as kind of a people. Now, I'll, I'll be straight with you. Far as I know, the multiverse isn't real. There's no other versions of you, and I think you know that. But it's nice to think about that. Maybe it's comforting. And there is no, far as I know, biblical like story or verses that speak to a multiverse. Unfortunately, I'm some of you guys are like, oh, is he going to give us a verse that the Bible tells the multiverse is real? No. As far as I know, there's nothing like that in the Bible. So why am I talking about it? The reason I'm talking about it is because as we talk about the concept of the Son of God and what is really happening through the covenants that we talked about last week, which was the basis of our understanding for this, understanding the story of Scripture is the covenants, looking at it from a multiverse lens is kind of helpful. It's not real, but having the framework or lens or like idea of timeline slash alternate timelines, that kind of stuff, as we apply that to the story of scripture, it helps us to kind of understand what really is happening. And hopefully at the end of this, you'd be like, oh, I see what you're saying. Because right now y'all look really confused. Like, what are you even talking about? And I'm praying that, you know, it's going to make sense. So uh, I'm going to recap real quick yesterday, uh, last week's messages to, so that you can understand what is really happening. So the idea of the, the story of Scripture is that God works through covenants. Covenants as a promise and a partnership between humanity and, and himself. And we see these major covenants throughout Scripture. And this is what, as we said last week, drive the story of the Bible forward. Okay, if you were here last week, hopefully you know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to catch the rest of you guys up. It started with Adam. Adam was the first covenant or first partnership. And we see it in Genesis chapter 1. It says, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In other words, God says, I made this. It's all awesome. It's all wonderful. It's perfect. Now you guys, in partnership, can you take care of it and make sure it stays awesome, but also grow it so that more awesomeness and goodness comes from it. That was the first partnership. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 1. Now, what's important for us to understand in, our, in the, the, the idea of the series, the idea of son, is that in Luke chapter 3, we shared this last week, that the, the writer of Luke, Luke says that Adam was the son of God. Okay? Not only Jesus was the son of God, we know that, but Adam was also called a son of God in Scripture. So here's what, I, I, I made a chart or like a graphic to help us kind of keep track of what's going on here. So the first covenant is between Adam and God. And it's simply this. This is kind of like the first reality, right? The first, first level one of the universe, okay? So there's Adam. He makes a covenant, and he sets us on a path. And this path, this life, or this reality I'm calling covenant life. Because it's characterized by a partnership that is whole and perfect, and it is good. So if, we, if Adam just keeps on that partnership, we're going to be good. And we're going to live this covenant life, and it's really wonderful. 
Now, the problem is, is that, as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall. They say, we don't want to do this partnership. We don't really like what you have set up for us, God. We want to do it our own way. We want to determine what's good and what's evil. We're going to do our own thing. And then so they sin, and, and sin enters into the world. And what that does, again, just for our understanding, what that does is it creates like a different timeline or a different universe. Not an actual different universe, right? But it's like he does that. So graphically, it would look like this. So that original line, that original line, let's get that on the screen. Yes, okay, so there's that original line. And then this is the new one. Let's put that back. This is the new one. So Adam sins, and so he creates a different kind of life. And I'm calling this one the broken life because it's characterized by a broken covenant. Okay, so there's this kind of new direction of humanity. And so what God does is, okay, in order to get everyone back on track, I'm going to work through small groups in history. I'm going to make partnerships or covenants with them. I'm going to give them things that they have to commit to, and I promise these things. And if they do that, we're going to fix it. So what happens is going on to the next slide. This is what he does. He sets up these different covenants. And we talked about the four major covenants in Scripture, the Noah covenant, the, oh, so it was the Adam covenant, the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the, is, the Israel, uh, Mosaic covenant, which I'm putting there as Israel, and the Davidic covenant. So these are major covenants that God set up through Israel's history in order to do something very, very specific. Now, this is where we get into the idea of sonship and why this is so confusing and why we don't really understand the beauty and the, the hugeness of this concept of son. Now, last week, I showed you how Jesus is called the only begotten son, right? John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Jesus is God's only begotten son. But then I showed you some interesting verses where other people in the Bible are called the firstborn or only begotten son. And other people are God's sons, apparently. So in these covenants, what we see in Hebrews chapter 11 is that Isaac, the son of Abraham, in that Abrahamic covenant, was called a son of the promise. So he is a son of the covenant. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, when he was tested, off, uh, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise of offering up his only begotten son. Only begotten son associated with the promise. All right, I want you to make that connection. Then when we enter into the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and this is what God says about Israel. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Then later on, into the next covenant, as he enters into the Davidic covenant, Israel becomes a nation, and they're like ruling, and then King David is in power, and this is what David says about himself. In Psalm chapter 2, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. God is saying this to David. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's odd. And then David says later in a different psalm, and this is something God is saying, and listen to these words. This is crazy. God's words to David about David. He says, I also, I also shall make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Uh, moving on. My loving kindness I will keep for him. I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days 
of heaven. That's Psalm 89, verse 27 to 29. So David is also a begotten son. Jesus is only begotten son, but David, Israel, Isaac, apparently these are all only begotten sons, which is an odd concept. Now what we have to understand when the idea of covenants and sonship, the connection is this. With every covenant, listen, this is really important. With every covenant, there is a son that is the the one who starts the covenant and the one who drives the covenant forward. Okay, so every covenant, it's not just a covenant, there's a covenant and then there's a son in every single covenant, right? So with, with David, the Davidic covenant, God makes the covenant with David, David is the son. Isaac is the son. Israel, who has that Mosaic covenant with the Ten Commandments, he is the son. So this is what Ty Gibson says. He says, Isaac bears the title only begotten son, just as Israel as a nation and David as Israel's king would later bear the same title. Only begotten son, only begotten son is a, this is important, a covenant title, not a chronological or ontological title. A lot of big words right there, right? But he says, only begotten son is a covenantal title, not a a chronological or ontological title. So in other words, the title of son of God is not about where Jesus came from, it's about why he came. It's not about his origins, it's about his purpose. Every covenant that was set up has a son to drive the covenant forward. And as we look at the story of of Israel and the sons there, they all try and they fail. And so essentially what's happening right now, what's happening right now is that in this chart, there's, there's a new timeline, right? There's the red time and the broken life. God sets up all these covenants. He gives each one a son, and their goal is to bring the people back up to the original plan, the original timeline, the original universe, to get them back to the covenant life. But each one of them fails. Every single covenant, every single son, they fail. And they cannot lead the people, they cannot lead humanity back into the covenant So I want to go back to that that most famous verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. And I think it opens up the truth of this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does this mean now? It's not saying God so loved the world that he gave the only son that he, you know, had, his only child, ontologically or where he came from, it says he gave his only begotten son. God gave the son that would drive the next covenant forward. That's what he's saying here. And I know we think of it as like God's actual literal son, like he gave birth to the son, but that's not really the case. Jesus is God's only begotten son is because he is the newest driver and newest son of God for the new and final covenant. Are you guys with me? Right, so this is a different perspective on why he came. It helps us to understand, in light of the cross, what this is really about. So this is what Ty gives. This, he kind of explains it well. He says this. He is, he's talking about Jesus here. He is Adam as God meant Adam to be. He is Israel as God meant Israel to be. David as God meant David to be. And humanity as God meant humanity to be. Right, so he's like the sons but, but better. He's like the sons of the previous covenants, but better. So where everyone fails, this is what Jesus does. Going back to our graphic here. 
The other ones tried to bring up the, the, the new timeline, the new universe, the new reality, and lift it back up through their, their faithfulness and their obedience, but they all fail. But then in that last covenant, the new covenant, Jesus comes and he is successfully able to combine the universes. He is successfully being able to take the skewed or the altered or the new timeline that is bad and broken and bring it back up and align it with the original timeline. So therefore at the cross, what he does there, he makes a path that we can all now live in covenant life once again. So this is what Jesus was doing. Like it's not just this like single moment of the cross. It is this huge picture of what God had done throughout history and what Jesus was really doing on the cross. Now, that's not the crazy part of this, this whole thing, guys. Like, that's crazy, right? Like, when I was reading it, I was like, I never. But he's the only one whose covenant he is faithful to and is able to restore humanity back into where it was supposed to always be. But here's the crazy thing is how did he do this? How was it that Jesus was able to do it? Was it just the cross? Was it just that he lived a faithful life for 33 years and then he went up on a cross and died for us and therefore he restores everything? That's actually not what he did. What he did was far, far crazier. This is what Ty Gibson says again. And again, if you're kind of wondering why do I keep talking about Ty Gibson, all of this is from a book, right? A lot of this is from these concepts that he wrote, wrote about that just kind of impacted me. This is what he says. As the Son of God, this is crazy, as the Son of God, the life of Jesus was a complete and faithful reenactment of Israel's history. It would not be an exaggeration to say that this is the whole point of the Bible. So Jesus comes as the final son for the final and new covenant, the one that's going to be faithful, the one's going to restore the timeline. But he can't just do that. But what he does is by his life and his ministry, he reenacts. He does all the things that Israel was supposed to do. In all the ways that Israel failed in their covenant, Jesus goes back and symbolically Spiritually, theologically, he fulfills what they had done in the past when they failed, but he succeeds in it. So let me just show you the parallels. And this is this like kind of blew my mind, right? I'm just going to talk about these parallels here, right? Joseph, Egypt, the baptism, the wilderness, the law, the 12, the kingdom of priests, and the name. All right, we're going to kind of go back. We're going to go down through each of these. And I want you to see how Jesus is like redoing their story. They failed. He's like, let me try over, do over. And I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to succeed where you had failed. So in, in the story of the Old Testament or in the story of the ancient Israelites, you have Joseph. Joseph is sent to Egypt. Joseph is a person, a young man with dreams. He dreams dreams and then he goes to Egypt. Why? So he can save his family. Yeah? Is that correct? That's what Joseph did, right? Look at this in Matthew chapter 2 verse 13. Talking about another Joseph in the Jesus story. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a what? A dream and said, get up, take, child, take the child and his mother and flee to where? Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. You know, maybe you remember this part of the story of Jesus' birth that they had to flee to Egypt. Which maybe seemed like a random detail. But Why? Why did Jesus have to do this? Because he was fulfilling and succeeding where Israel had failed. So there's a Joseph in the ancient Israelite story. There's a Joseph, Jesus' father. They both had dreams. They both go to Egypt to save their family. Then 
Israel is, is enslaved in Egypt, and then God calls them out of Egypt, and they leave Egypt. And then we have this prophetic verse in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, about the story. It says, um, he remained there until the death of Herod. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been, verse 15, where God is saying, it is prophetically a, a movement to bring my son of God out of Egypt, just like Israel left Egypt. Okay, moving forward. After Jesus uh, is, it grows up and begins his ministry, he is baptized. And there's a story of him going to John the Baptist, and John baptizes him. Now, in the, in the ancient Israelite story, the Israelites, they leave Egypt, and as they enter into, as they're moving towards the promised land, they go through the Red Sea. This is what the Apostle Paul says about that moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. Can we get that on the screen? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. I'll just read it for you guys. It says, oh, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Israel was baptized. They went through a process of baptism as they went through the Red Sea. Jesus was also baptized. And I think this gave new meaning to what Jesus says to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist, uh, when Jesus came to John the Baptist and he says, baptize me, John the Baptist, remember what he said? He says, no, nah, bro. I'm John the Baptist. You're Jesus. You're the Lamb of God. I can't baptize you. But what did Jesus say? He says this in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In order for me to fulfill all righteousness, I need to go through the steps. I need to do everything Israel did, and I need to be successful. So I got to get baptized. I know I'm sinless, and I know I didn't do anything wrong, and I'm not like the rest of you, but here's why I'm here. I'm here to be a son of God, and I need to retrace the steps of our people who broke the covenant, and I need to fulfill it all. So in all righteousness, baptize me, John. We're going to move quickly through a couple, few other ones. After Jesus is baptized, after Jesus is baptized, he goes into the wilderness, and he is tempted. Israel, after they go through the Red Sea, they wander the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. In the wilderness, Israel is tempted and they fail and they sin. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, he is tempted by Satan himself and he is successful and he does not sin. Moving on, the law, when, when, when the, the Israelites go to the mountain of Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he, he restores and he brings up that Mosaic covenant and they kind of move forward from there. Jesus, in his first sermon, in the, the biggest sermon of his life, he goes up on a mountain. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do on the Sermon on the Mount? He gives the Ten Commandments and the true meaning of the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard it said, do not, be a, uh, do not murder, but I'll tell you what it's really about. So he explains what the Ten Commandments is really about on a mountain. And then he even says this. During that sermon, he says, I have come. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Fulfilling the role of the sons of God, the failed sons of God. Ancient Israel, they had 12 sons. From those 12 sons would become the 12 tribes, which become the people of Israel. Jesus on earth, he would create a, a movement, but he started with 12 disciples, from which would come the new spiritual Israel that we call the church. When God talked about the people of his people, this is what he says. He says this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Look at what Peter says about the church. You 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. In other words, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. So you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus is reenacting it all. And, I, and the last thing that I got to say about this, this is the most obvious that some of you guys probably don't know. And this is like, what? How did I not know this? The man, the leader who would lead Israel into the promised land, his name was Joshua, right? Moses is second hand. Oh, don't put it on oh, the screen. You already ruined it. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. They literally have the same exact name. Joshua and Jesus are the same name. And Joshua led Israel into the promised land. Jesus is leading us into our heavenly promised land. Right? So, like, what Jesus does is he goes back and retraces, reenacts, succeeds where all the covenant sons and the nations of Israel failed. And what he does by doing that is he doesn't create a point in which from now on we can enter into the covenant life. What he did, let's put this on screen, he restored the entire timeline. Now, in reality, they all messed up, they all sinned, but it's like because of what Jesus did as the new faithful covenant son, it's like they never did that. The covenant moved forward and the covenant life, that timeline, that reality was never broken because Jesus came on this earth. He came to this earth, lived like us, succeeded where all the covenant sons failed. He was able to restore the timeline. That's crazy, man. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus did. I just want to put this on the screen. Now, last week, I asked this question. How do you know God is love? How do you know God is love? Is it, is it by the things that happen to you in your life? Is it things that, that, that you experience? Is it the, the blessings, the, the things going on? Like, is that how you know God is love? Do you know God is love just because it says it in the Bible? Like, how do you know? And I said last week, the reason you know, the evidence that God is love is the covenants. Because God has been covenantally faithful for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, broken covenant after broken covenant after broken covenant, and he's still stuck with us. His relational faithfulness is the best evidence of the fact that God is love. Not what you feel on the inside. And that's good. You should feel those things. But that's not why we know God is love. We know God is love is because throughout history, he has never abandoned us. The question I want to ask you today, last week was how do you know God is love? The question I want to ask you today is, how much does God love you? How much does God love you? Like, this much? <laughs> this much? How much, do you, how much does God love you? I would argue, let's put this on the screen, this, not that one, the other one, the older graphic, back, this one. This is how much God loves you. This is the most unemotional, most boring, most non-like warm, fuzzy version of God's love. But this accurately describes and depicts how much God loves you. He loves you so much that he rewrote the past to be with you. He rewrote the failures of his people through his son, his only begotten son, just so that he could spend eternity with you. This is how much he loves you. You know, we often think of, we look at the cross and we say, this shows us how much Jesus loves us. 
Absolutely. Because he died and he sacrificed himself for us, that's how I know. That's how much Jesus loves me. That's true. But that alone is not the reality of how much he loves you. Because the, the reality of his love is not, it wasn't one moment where Jesus decided to sacrifice himself. And it wasn't even a whole lifetime where he decided, I'm going to live for others. I'm going to live for my people. I want to be with my children. So I'm going to live this certain life. I'm going to live sinlessly. And one day I'm going to die for 33 years. That's not even the weight of how much he loves you. The weight that the cross bears is thousands and thousands of years of failures throughout history of his people. That cross is a symbol not of one moment, but the entire history of humanity was on that cross when he died for us. That's how much he loves you. I make no mistake that the cross was not just a single moment in history. It was the culmination, it was the climax of thousands and thousands of years of failure. And on that cross, everything was restored. This is what Ty Gibson says in conclusion of this. He says, we are objects of a faithful love that would rather die than let us go. That's how much he loves you. You know he is a God of love because of the covenants that he's been faithful to all those things, but we know he, how much he loves because of his actions in rewriting history just so he could spend the future and eternity with us. This brings special meaning to me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the section of scripture where they talk about the new covenant. And this is where he says, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. To me, this brings new meaning to the concept of everlasting eternal love. I always thought of eternal love and everlasting from the point of my birth to the end of time, right? Like that's God's everlasting love. But it doesn't just reach forward. God's everlasting and eternal love reached backwards also. It went all the way back to creation and it spans through time, through history, through Israel, through Jesus, through your life, all the way to eternity. That is how much he loves you. And that is what it means that Jesus was the son of God. And so this story that we celebrate his birth, it is the beginning of that final saga. It is that moment. It is the start of Jesus restoring the timeline. It is the story of how Jesus began to rewrite history, to bring oneness to the multiverse once again, to move us from that new, sad, broken reality and move us up to the original plan, the original reality of covenant life with God. That's what the Christmas story is really about. Again, there's some beautiful little images here and detail, details there, but let's not forget how massive and theologically and biblically significant this story is. I've never seen this before. I've never understood this before. For me right now, it's blowing my mind. More specifically to say God's love is blowing my mind. And I hope that it's overcoming and overwhelming you guys today as well as I share this with you. You know, usually we like to end sermons with applications and like all that kind of stuff, but like right now it just seems not appropriate. Like right now all we have to do is sit in his love. Like we just got to like stew and simmer in the reality of God's everlasting back and forward love, the rewriting history. And kind of love. We just got to be in that and just take a moment 
to allow that truth to just like settle into our hearts and our souls and in our minds. I just want you to do that. I'm not going to assign you guys any projects. I'm not going to give you any homework. I'm not going to give you any questions. Just like allow yourself to simmer in that truth that you are loved. That's how much you are loved. Now, next week, as you go to part three, I shared this last week. This is my favorite one. Part three is my favorite one of this message. This one was pretty good, but I'm really excited about next week, part three, as we talk about an interesting word in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. A child is born to us, a son is given, his government. That's an odd word for that verse. But the idea of God's government, how that relates to the story of Christmas and his birth, crazy, crazy, crazy. So I want to invite you guys back to that. Let's simmer in his love as we worship, as we close this time, and let's pray. Father in heaven, wow, I had no idea, God. I had no idea that you loved us that much. Like, I've, I've thought about it, and I've heard about it, and I've sung about it, and I've preached about it. But God, it's, it's a whole different thing to just be in it right now. And I hope, God, that if anyone is here in this place right now, is moved in any way, I pray, God, that we would re- realize just the, the, the magnitude of your love for us that we see in this story of Scripture. Like, this is the whole point. This is what it was all about, God, and I thank you for revealing that to us. Let us not leave this place unsure of your love for us. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what hardships we're facing, let us know, God, that you've been faithful all throughout history, and, Father, you've poured out your love on us before we even were born. Thank you, God. Please let us just experience that and know that in the deepest parts of our soul. In your name we pray. Amen.